Just in case, just in case, comes now the undersigned and hear my request with all due respect. From the honorable, his honor, her honor, your honor, do you want to pursue? Hello, happy Independence Eve and welcome to the July 3rd, 2017 edition of Just In Case. This is the podcast of criminal law cases just in from the Supreme Court of the United States, the Tenth Circuit, and the Kansas Appellate Courts. I'm Paige Nichols, and this podcast is brought to you by Monnet and Spurrier Chartered on the first and third Mondays of every month. And heads up, podcast listeners, in the next episode, I'm happy to report, I will be joined by Jennifer Roth for a Kansas legislative update. So if you want to know what new crimes and procedures became law this last weekend, be sure to tune in. For today, I'll be talking about published cases of interest decided on or after June 17, starting with the ending of the 2016 United States Supreme Court term. Imagine this. You have received a traffic ticket. Bummer. But then it gets dismissed. Joy! You take to Facebook to celebrate, and you write... Man, God is good. How about I got so much favor, they dismissed the ticket before court even started. No fine, no court cost, no nothing spent. Praise be to God. Wow, thanks, Jesus. Okay, your post may be a bit over the top, but did you think it would land you in jail on a felony charge? Well, that's exactly what happened to Lester Packingham a registered sex offender who ran afoul of a North Carolina law prohibiting registered offenders from so much as accessing social media sites. Mr. Packingham lost his First Amendment challenge to this statute in the state trial court, won in the North Carolina Court of Appeals, but then lost again in the North Carolina Supreme Court. But Just as it was beginning to seem like God was not quite so good to Mr. Packingham as he had hoped, the United States Supreme Court unanimously came to his theological and practical rescue. In Packingham v. North Carolina, the High Court struck down the North Carolina statute. This law violated the First Amendment because it impermissibly restricted lawful speech and, in Justice Kennedy's words, by prohibiting sex offenders from using those websites, North Carolina with one broad stroke bars access to what for many are the principal sources for knowing current events, checking ads for employment, speaking and listening in the modern public square, and otherwise exploring the vast realms of human thought and knowledge. Not to mention traffic tickets. In Maslinyak v. United States, Mrs. Maslinyak was convicted of unlawfully procuring citizenship because she once lied to an immigration official and then, six years later, she falsely swore on a naturalization form that she had never lied while either applying for an immigration benefit or to gain entry to the United States. This conviction stripped Mrs. Maslinyak of her citizenship. And this conviction was returned on jury instructions that said it did not matter whether her lie was material. The lie did not need to influence the naturalization decision in order for the jury to return a guilty verdict. The Sixth Circuit affirmed the conviction, but the United States Supreme Court reversed. The Supreme Court interpreted the unlawful procurement statute to require, in the case of false statements, that the defendant lied about facts that would have mattered to an immigration official and would have justified denying naturalization. 
This result was really not very surprising after oral argument. There, the justices really gave the government heck for arguing that any lie on a naturalization form, whether material or not, could result in a conviction and a loss of citizenship. Here are just a few examples. Now you're going to hear first Justice Roberts, then Justice Sotomayor, then Justice Kagan, and finally Justice Breyer, all parrying with the Assistant Solicitor General for the government. I looked at, on the naturalization form, there's a question. It's number 22. Have you ever, and they've got ever in bold form, Mm -hmm. committed, assisted in committing, or attempted to commit a crime or offense for which you were not arrested? Some time ago, outside the statute of limitations, I drove 60 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. I'm sorry to hear that. I was, I was not arrested. <laughs> now, you say that if I answer that question no, 20 years after I was naturalized as a citizen, you can knock on my door and say, guess what, you're not an American citizen after all. Is that... Failure to disclose the use of a childhood nickname that is embarrassing, that has no relationship to anything whatsoever, could you prosecute that person? You'll be glad to know I don't have another of these questions (laughs) for you. Although I am a little bit horrified to know that every time I lie about my weight, it has those kinds of questions. Only, Only under oath. Yeah. The point is that, uh, I think, of all these questions, the same thing. Mm-hmm. You read, you've read the briefs. The questions are unbelievably broad. All right, we can think of a thousand examples, not a thousand, but maybe only 500, mm-hmm. of the kind <laughs> that the Chief Justice gave. And uh, it's, to me, rather surprising that the government of the United States thinks that Congress is interpreting this statute and wanted it interpreted in a way that would throw into doubt the citizenship of vast percentages of all naturalized citizens. I I mean, isn't now, you explain, you explain to me why that isn't so. I don't think that it would throw into doubt. You want 15 more examples, uh, such as the one that the Chief Justice gave? I'm truly shocked by the one he gave, by the way. But, but. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, moving on. In McWilliams v. Dunn, the United States Supreme Court reaffirmed the holding of Ake v. Oklahoma and further held that the state must provide an indigent defendant with access to a mental health expert who is both sufficiently available to the defense and independent from the prosecution to effectively assist in one, evaluation, two, preparation, and three, presentation of the defense. The state of Alabama did not provide that access to Mr. McWilliams in this case, and so this case is sent back to the 11th Circuit to consider whether Mr. McWilliams is entitled to federal habeas relief from his death sentence. Lee v. United States is a drug case with immigration consequences. Mr. Lee, a native of South Korea, came to the States when he was only 13 years old. He never went back to South Korea. He grew up here to become a successful restaurateur, but in 2009, he was charged with a drug crime. Mr. Lee's lawyer recommended that he plead guilty so that he could get a shorter sentence. Mr. Lee asked his lawyer, will I have to be deported? No, no, you don't have to worry about that, his lawyer responded. So Lee pleaded guilty. And of course, you know where this is going because, of course, the lawyer was wrong. He had advised Mr. Lee to plead to a crime that would lead to mandatory 
deportation. When Mr. Lee figured out the consequences of his guilty plea, he tried to vacate his conviction, arguing that he had been deprived of effective assistance of counsel. The government agreed that Mr. Lee's lawyer's advice was deficient, but the government argued, and the Sixth Circuit agreed, that Lee could not show he was prejudiced by that bad advice because the evidence of his guilt was so overwhelming that he would have been convicted and deported anyway, and so his only rational strategy was to take a plea for less prison time. The Supreme Court disagreed. Here is how the court explained the matter. We cannot agree that it would be irrational for a defendant in Lee's position to reject the plea offer in favor of trial. But for his attorney's incompetence, Lee would have known that accepting the plea agreement would certainly lead to deportation. Going to trial? Almost certainly. If deportation were the determinative issue for an individual in plea discussions, as it was for Lee, if that individual had strong connections to this country and no other, as did Lee, and if the consequences of taking a chance at trial were not markedly harsher than pleading, as in this case, that almost could make all the difference. Balanced against holding on to some chance of avoiding deportation was a year or two more of prison time. Not everyone in Lee's position would make the choice to reject the plea, but we cannot say it would be irrational to do so. With that, the court held that there was a reasonable probability that, but for Mr. Lee's counsel's errors, he would not have pleaded guilty and would have insisted on going to trial. Turner v. United States is a Brady case. Here, a majority of the Supreme Court held that a slew of evidence withheld from a 1984 murder prosecution did not meet Brady's materiality standard. Finally, I'll just mention three other habeas cases that the court decided last month against the defendants. Each of these cases involves complicated post-conviction issues, standards, and policies, which I'm not going to explore here. Instead, I'll just let you know these rulings are out there in grossly oversimplified terms, and you can take some time with the cases themselves if you want to know more. In Weaver v. Massachusetts, the Supreme Court held that if your lawyer's ineffectiveness resulted in structural error, you still have to show that you were prejudiced by the error, even though otherwise that structural error would be per se, reversible. In Davia v. Davis, the Supreme Court held that state post-conviction counsel's failure to challenge state direct appeal counsel's ineffectiveness does not open the door to federal habeas review of a state court conviction. Lastly, in Jenkins v. Hutton, the Supreme Court unanimously held in a summary per curiam opinion that the Sixth Circuit should not have granted federal habeas relief on miscarriage of justice grounds to death row inmate Percy Hutton. And that is all we're going to hear from the High Court until fall, which brings us to the Tenth Circuit. In United States v. DeRusse, the Tenth Circuit affirmed Mr. DeRusse's sentence of time served for a kidnapping, rejecting the government's argument that the sentence was substantively unreasonable. The district court had, in part, relied on the fact that the defendant's criminal conduct was out of character for him. And on this point, the Tenth Circuit stresses the difference between a departure for aberrant behavior and a variance for aberrant behavior. The departure scenario is guided by the guidelines, which require the presence of a set set of factors. But when the district court chooses to vary from the guidelines, it's not restricted by those guideline departure factors. United States v. Carrillo is a plea withdrawal drug conspiracy case. 
the district court plainly erred here at the plea hearing when it did not tell Mr. Carrillo what maximum and minimum penalties he was facing. And the district court plainly erred when it failed to make sure Mr. Carrillo understood the penalties he was facing. But these errors did not prejudice Mr. Carrillo because he can't show that without these errors he wouldn't have pleaded guilty. He was advised of the penalties at his first appearance, and he never objected or otherwise appeared surprised when those penalties were made apparent at sentencing. However, there was yet another problem at this plea hearing. The district court also failed to discuss the elements of the charged drug conspiracy with Mr. Carrillo. The elements weren't in the indictment, and there was no recitation of them in a plea agreement. In fact, there wasn't a plea agreement. Did this failure prejudice Mr. Carrillo? The Tenth Circuit doesn't say. Instead, it decides to grant relief on yet another ground. What else could there be, you ask? In addition to the errors just discussed, the district court also failed to determine that there was an adequate factual basis for Mr. Carrillo's plea. The indictment charged a conspiracy involving at least 100 grams of heroin. This quantity would have subjected Mr. Carrillo to a mandatory minimum of five years in prison. But nothing in the plea record established that that quantity was either within the scope of Mr. Carrillo's agreement or reasonably foreseeable to him, two elements that have to be admitted or proved to trigger that statutory mandatory minimum sentence. So what's the remedy? Does this problem blow up the plea? Or can Mr. Carrillo stand convicted of a lesser-included conspiracy, one that doesn't trigger that statutory minimum? The parties didn't address this on appeal, and so the Tenth Circuit punts it back to the district court. And that's the news from Denver, which means it's time to kick back and enjoy some Flint Hills fireworks (laughs) at the Kansas Appellate Courts. The big news in Kansas this week is the Kansas Supreme Court's decisions last Friday on rehearing in the DUI breath test cases Rice and Nice. Rice was the case finding that the Kansas statute criminalizing warrantless DUI breath test refusals was unconstitutional under the Fourth Amendment. Nice was the case holding that the standard implied consent advisory is unduly coercive. The Kansas Supreme Court granted rehearing in both of these cases after the U.S. Supreme Court decided Birchfield versus North Dakota. The bottom line in Birchfield was, if you refuse a breath test incident to arrest, you can be convicted of a crime, but if you refuse a blood test incident to arrest or otherwise, you can't be convicted of a crime for that refusal. So what does the Birchfield holding mean for Rice and Nice? Well, in Rice, the Kansas Supreme Court stood by its conclusion that the statute criminalizing warrantless DUI breath test refusals is facially unconstitutional. Why? Well, because the Kansas statute is a little bit different from the statutes at issue in Birchfield. The Kansas statute doesn't criminalize the refusal to submit to a constitutional search. Instead, it criminalizes the withdrawal of implied consent. An officer may demand a breath test as a search incident to arrest, but the state can't prosecute a refusal on grounds of implied consent, says the Kansas Supreme Court. So, Rice stands, which means that Nice stands, as do Wyckoff and Wilson, two other cases that were reheard after Birchfield. 
In State v. Ashley, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed Mr. Ashley's convictions for felony murder and attempted aggravated robbery, rejecting Mr. Ashley's claims that the trial court should have given a cautionary instruction with respect to an inmate informant and that the trial court should have granted a new trial based on the post-trial statements of two other inmates that cast doubt on the informant's credibility. In State v. Perez, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed Mr. Perez's convictions for murder, multiple rapes, and other crimes, rejecting hearsay, instructional, and 60-455 related claims. State v. Glover is a Fourth Amendment case. In Glover, the Kansas Court of Appeals reversed a district court suppression order, holding that an officer has reasonable suspicion to make a traffic stop if the officer, number one, knows that the registered owner of the car has a suspended license, and number two, the officer doesn't have any reason to think that anyone other than the registered owner is driving the car. Finally, from the Kansas Court of Appeals, we have state versus horse-looking. Here, the Court of Appeals holds that a tribal conviction for residential burglary that wasn't classified by the tribal code as either a misdemeanor or a felony should not have been classified as a felony for Kansas criminal history purposes. Absent a felony designation by the jurisdiction of conviction, that prior conviction has to be treated as a misdemeanor under the Kansas sentencing guidelines. And that's an appellate wrap. Thanks to Oyez for the Supreme Court sound clips. Oyez is a free law project from Cornell's Legal Information Institute, the Chicago Kent College of Law, and Justia.com. Visit Oyez at oyez.org. Thanks to you for listening. Want to talk back? Email me at justincasepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Paige Nicholson. I'll be back again with Jennifer Roth for a Kansas legislative update in two weeks. Oye, 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 wherefore, whereby, we're ready to wear. Rest you to cut it, give me pizza cutter, just in case.